Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM, and you may be listening to this any time of day or night on my podcast, VoicesOfExperience.com. Let's see, we have a pretty full uh, full show today. We've been uh, off for a while playing encore shows, but it's great to be back live in the studio with Eric Crema. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. It's a new year. Boy, you're quick. <laughs> I, somebody, I, it, it's funny when you say Happy New Year to people and it seems to get past a date. Right. I think and they're like, like January, hold on. No. We, they're like, you're still saying that? So right. what is the cutoff date? Do it's you know? January 14th at noon. Okay. Well, there you go, because this was this okay. week. All right. Any other, I'm, just ask me any question. I'll <laughs> answer it like that. January 14th at noon. Why? I don't know, but that's it. Okay, got it. All right, so uh, today we have uh, pollster Stu Elway. I have him many times visiting us on Voices of Experience. Today he's going to talk about the governor's race. Uh, Bob Ferguson, the Democrat, and Dave Reichert, the Republican, are running. And uh, it's early. I'm not sure that many people are interested in this. We'll make it quick. But I do think that it's uh, interesting because there is some surprise information that's contained in his poll. Okay. We just have to wait and see what Stu has to say about that. We also have an interview with the author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. She likes to write psychological thrillers and mm. an interview about her latest one, Reef Road. And it's an unsolved murder of a young girl. And the inspiration came from her mother's real-life experience. Wow. So we'll talk about that. And she will... Be up uh, in a short uh, while. So let's see. We have meandering musings today with Neil Peterson. He talks about Gaza, his visit that he made there in 1963. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And uh, he's got some insights into what's going on now, but it's amazing. Like Neil has been everywhere where he's been meandering a lot of different places <laughs> yeah. in his life. That's for sure. Oh, about uh, eight months ago, I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Bruce Amundsen, and I know Bruce very well, and he recounted a story about Pete Carroll, who then was the head football coach of the Seattle Seahawks, but as we all know, he is no longer the head football coach, but I kind of shortened the interview I had with him and recount an experience that he had with Pete Carroll when he was working at Weyerhaeuser. It's very fascinating and I don't think you're surprised by the character of this man, but it's really a very inspiring story hmm. that uh, includes Pete Carroll. And by the way, I've heard, and I suggest that to him, he didn't call and ask my opinion, Pete Carroll, yeah. but I was thinking he should continue coaching and find another job. And I heard that that's kind of in his uh, uh, future, maybe. He's that's going to happen. doing that. So we'll see about that. Okay. Timeless classic. Today, this writer and singer wrote this song about growing up on the poor side of town. And it was interesting. He said, I don't really know why these lyrics came into my head because 
I grew up in Beverly Hills. I didn't grow up in the poor side of town. So that's the uh, song for today, the timeless classic. It did go to number one in 1966. I have it in my head now. That, Do you? That's all, absolutely. Okay. So you 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 don't you have to write about what you know, but maybe not sing about what you know. Yeah. You can I live hold, in Beverly Hills. Until I looked this up, I thought, hey, he grew up in the poor side of town. Yeah. And then I start reading about it, and I go, that's interesting. He didn't. Eric, do you have an idea of the song? Absolutely. Yeah, I know what it is. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of you today. Jeez, off to a slow start this year. Yes. Same singer. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, oh, that's right. It just violated. You can't own say name. it angry. You need to it's oh. sort of it's, one of the, okay. it's a well wish. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year. But I violated my own uh, rules there. All right, solopreneur today. We're going to talk about entrepreneurs and uh, huge risk takers. Are they? The question is, are mm-hmm. they huge risk takers? I think a lot of people think they are, but are they? So what else before we get into the program? I think that's That's a lot. It. Yeah, we got a lot uh, going here, so we better get to it right now. I'm actually going to jump into the solopreneur segment in just a moment. We are back, and we're going to talk about entrepreneurism. With this Solomonir uh, segment, uh, Paul, you set it up prior to the break. Entrepreneurs, are they huge risk takers? Everyone I've ever talked to says yes. What do you say? I didn't pay you enough, but uh, <laughs> you still got it right. Yes, I say no. There's eight myths I talk about, and these are ones that I have thought about over the years. Hmm. And um, it comes to me as I've been running my business for 30-plus years. And there's certain things that when I went into it, I thought that. And then I started visiting with other people who were running their businesses like me. And I kind of said, you know, it really is not that way. And how do we believe that? Well, we keep reading in entrepreneur-type magazines or you see the big uh, tech firms that go big, get billions of dollars, and you find out the founder started Mm -hmm. his business on a credit card and he did all these things the way he um, steered the company and now he's wealthy and the thing is, that's not the story. The story is that 90% of businesses that are started have less than five employees. And of the millions that are out there, and most people who go into business for themselves, they have worked for someone else or they've had someone in their family, either their father, their uh, mother, brother, or something, who started a business and they get the reality check of what it's really like. They're not the first one out the door. Now, I was, but nonetheless, most of the people in that category, that's another arena that people will go into business for themselves and they have a pretty good idea and they have more of a reason for wanting to succeed. Let's say if they want to go into business having worked for someone else going, this isn't working for me, which was my kind of experience. I did nonprofit. I worked for the government. I worked for a number of different opportunities. And I never even considered entrepreneurship. It wasn't something in my blood. I need to do this, which a lot of people have. They're five years old. I, I've interviewed people like that. And they say, I want to be in business for myself. That was the last resort for me. And I thought, this isn't working for me. As I just said, I'm going to start my own business. So I was in the frame of mind to starting a business that will work and I will do anything I can to make it succeed. And those are the types of people that I talk to who have the same mindset. And that, that does things like you keep your overhead low. You don't necessarily go after something that 
when another myth that I bring up is follow your passion and the money will follow, you go into something that's going to work. And there are a lot of things that will work that will be friendly to keep your overhead low and ultimately will succeed. It's a little esoteric, mm-hmm. but I do think it's really important that people go into business with that sort of uh, mindset. I, I think you really have to think of a niche, something that you experience that you tried to get something and like go to a print shop in a town, a gig harbor. And I'm not, I'm using an example, maybe 40 years ago and you went to get something printed. There's no print shops in gig harbor. That's a niche. Yes. No, I want to start a a band over here and make my money there. Well, the odds of that are remote. Yeah. Opening something that there's nothing there. Well, you probably have a fairly good chance of succeeding if you do other things right keeping your overhead low, but there you are solving a problem with people and they're going to come to you. You don't have to advertise to them to coax them in to come through your door. They need to get printing done hmm. or something like that. That's my point. Did you do have something? You well, I was just going to say, it me? sounds to me like you can reduce your risk. You know, there's risk in anything. There's risk crossing the street, right? Right. And you're not going to cross the street, close your eyes and hope for the best. You That's know, correct. You're going to keep your eyes wide open, look both ways. No different than in business, I would imagine. Yeah. The more knowledge you have, Things like reading the books you've presented to us, uh, Paul, it negates a lot of that risk. Or that's it can. right. And that's, that's exactly what it's about. So now, are you going to give away a book? I will give away a book. Ooh. I'm going to bill you for it since you brought it yeah. up. <laughs> right. um, it's called Is Self-Employment for You? Mm-hmm. Anyone can start a business. Only a few can sustain a business. That's kind of the byline of the book. And I uh, wrote it in 2018. I read it through again. It's pretty up to date. There's nothing in there that would say, what is this guy thinking? Um, so anyhow, yes, a, a complimentary copy of the book and the first caller. Eric, you take it away. Yeah, first caller to dial this number, 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. No tricky questions, anything like that. It's just the first caller to that number who also then leaves their name, their address, and phone number. We need that just to verify that you are who you are and so that we can get it to you. Again, 425-653-1166. Paul? And we will not do anything with your phone number whatsoever nope. your address. That That's is right. yours. We'll delete it right afterwards. 100%. So, again, self-employment for you, first caller. Thank you, Eric, for uh, getting that information out. I didn't have it written down. That's kind of when you get back into a new show. So thanks for the reminder there. So, um I think we covered that pretty good. I think it was great. Um, I think it's it's apropos as we go into the new year. I'm not going to say those words, but as we go into the new year, a lot of times people are thinking fresh start or I'm going to do something different. Or last year, I just really decided I hate my job. Right. I'm really good at what I do, and maybe I'll go into business for myself doing it. That's kind of the message I like that you had said. Right. It, precisely. Yeah. Have that skill. Make the money yourself. Good enough. Well, we'll be back with uh, my interview. What I'm going to have on the author, and her name again is Deborah Goodrich Royce. All right, we have uh, Deborah Goodrich Royce, and she is a highly acclaimed psychological thriller author. Her latest book, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is Reef Road, and it's out on paperback. 
Now, I wasn't a fan of All My Children, but I heard about that soap opera when it was out. Apparently, she was an actress on that show. So maybe some people out there do know who she is on that program. Um, Reef Road is about an unsolved murder of a young girl that, again, as I mentioned, that was inspired by a real-life crime. Here's my conversation with Deborah. Deborah, you referred to as the queen of plot twists. How did you get such an exalted title? <laughs> I paid someone. <laughs> no, um, I think I re- actually I think it was a bookstore owner who was reviewing my book who called me that, and it stuck. And was this after a series of books you had written, or was it in the beginning? When did the, uh, this bookstore owner give you that title? Then yes, there was a few books in. No, I, I didn't get that after number one because you, you know you never actually know if you can keep going coming up with twist after twist. Uh, so knock on wood, I've done it for three books so far. I'm working on a fourth. and So I'm always kind of uh, crossing my fingers and doing a little rain dance, hoping I can keep it up. Reef Road, what is that about, and how does that differ from your other books? Well, I'll start with how it differs. Reef Road is based on a true crime. So all of my uh, thrillers are, you know, identity thrillers or psychological thrillers. But Reef Road has a true crime underpinning. My own mother's best friend was murdered in Pittsburgh in 1984 when my mother was just 12. And it's remained an unsolved crime, and it's had a, a strong effect on my mother for the rest of her life. So that was really the genesis for this book. And because I happened to be in Florida when the world shut down on, you know, whatever March date it was in 2020, uh, there I was in front of my computer, and I decided to finally dig in and research the real crime. And the first surprise was that there was so much material on this crime available on the Internet. And, you know, I was able to get the coroner's report and all this other stuff. And bit by bit, I turned it into a work of fiction. Are you hopeful that maybe that a book like this would help solve the ultimate crime? I'm calling you from Seattle, and we've had like two crimes that have been solved, and they were from the 1940s and 50s. No, it's it's always an interesting concept. I don't have probably as strong a motivation as my mother would of, oh, you know, kind of this justice motivation. That's not... I probably misspoke that. Of course, I would always like to see justice uh, served, but I'm not seeking to convict somebody. I was seeking more to explore how these things that didn't actually happen to us but happened to someone we know can have as strong an effect on us, which I think is a very universal phenomenon. And this uh, book begins in 1948, Pittsburgh. And it takes us to 2020 Palm Beach, Florida, where the lives of two seemingly disconnected women, one of whom is a writer who's obsessed with the murder of her mother's best friend, and one of whom is a younger, more glamorous woman whose husband and children disappear. Uh, And you start to toggle back and forth like a ticking metronome to unravel what dark thread connects these two women. Now, when you sit down to write a novel, 
Are you like many authors and some of them I've talked to and I asked this question and that is, do you write the last chapter first or do you just let it unfold and the ending kind of surprises you as much as say the reader when they have read some of your books? I'm in the latter camp. I let it unfold. I do not write the last chapter first. I definitely have, uh, you know, a premise that I'm operating from. I do copious notes. And I keep timelines and I keep calendars. You have to be very meticulous with your calendar. Uh, let's say you have an object, a, a murder weapon, for example, and you last see it on Saturday, the 10th of July, 1985. You better darn well make sure as you are hopping back and forth that you don't show the thing on a latter date if you're not supposed to. I see. There was something in the uh, advance sheet that I was uh, looking at and preparing for the interview, and it says something about the difference between a reveal and a twist. What is that? Oh, it's a very big difference. So if you think of Agatha Christie and that type of locked room mystery where you have a contained group of characters in pretty much a sealed setting, where one of the men's up dead, you know one of the others of them did it, you don't know which one, and at a certain point it's revealed, often by a detective. So that's a reveal. So in a twist, you're going along and you think one thing is happening, and boom, all of a sudden, the rug is pulled out from under you, and you realize something completely different is going on. And what makes a twist work is if the writer drops a breadcrumb trail. So when the twist happens, you in your mind can say, oh, now I see why this, that, or the other thing happened along the way. Got it. Okay, thanks for explaining that. You're a former film and television actress, and you were in the soap opera called All My Children. Is your acting career, was that a springboard into writing, or it was just something that came along the way that had nothing really to do with that? But did it have any influence on your writing? Were you writing during that time, or did this happen after? It was a total springboard. I've always loved story. So I went to college first, so I did a lot of writing in college. And in my acting years, I did a little bit of writing. But then when I, uh, I got married and had two children, and my husband and I, moved to Paris because he had an opportunity there, and I was actually at that moment hired as a reader uh, for a French film studio. They, they wanted English native-speaking readers. So that was my first toe in the water, and then I came back to the States, and I was the story editor at Miramax Films, and a story editor is like a book editor. So those years were really my writing school. Um, a lot of people come from an editorial role, and it was very helpful for me. And would you like to maybe have some of your novels turned into some feature films in the future? I would love it. And the first two, Finding Mrs. Ford, was optioned, and the actress Gillian Anderson was attached for a while. I'm not sure that's going to work out. You know, these things can go north or south or any other direction along the way. And then Ruby Falls, my second novel, has been optioned, and someone is writing a screenplay of that right now. Well, congratulations. You have a lot going. Anything else before we go? Yeah, the book is out in paperback. The paperback has a terrific reader's guide with lots of questions for book clubs and an interview with me. All right, that was the interview I had with Deborah 
Goodrich Royce, and um, very interesting uh, topic and uh, subject matter. And I always like to write fiction, but I'm not that creative. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. tough. A lot of people try to write books, and they struggle. Yeah, I've heard of people taking, you know, I'm going to take a year off, write that book, and they get four or five pages, and then back to work. Yes. Oh, that movie Chevy Chase was in, which you'll remember the title. We'll look it up. But it was one where he left his job in the city as a sports writer. Was that writer. Funny Farm? Funny Farm. That's it. Was it was Funny Farm. Thank okay. you. Yeah, that was, so, that was exactly what he was doing. <laughs> there, and he couldn't get any of it done. Yeah. But then his wife did and wrote a smash book. That was a good movie. Um, if you would like to look at uh, some of Deborah's books and things, you can go and Google Reef Road to get started. And that's R-E-E-F Road. That's all you need to do. I like you the name. It. Yeah. Conjures up mystery. All right, so we'll be back in just a second, and we're going to be visiting with Neil Peterson on Gaza. A view of Gaza, 60 years earlier. Exactly 60 years ago, I traveled to the Gaza Strip In 1963, I spent the summer in Egypt as a participant in Operation Crossroads Africa, which, according to President John Kennedy, was the progenitor of the Peace Corps. The idea was to improve understanding and future cooperation between America and African nations by having young Americans spend their summer working with their African peers, working together on projects with our hands. Most everyone went to countries below the Sahara Desert except for my group. We went to Egypt, which at the time was quite something, since the United States had cut off all diplomatic relations with Egypt under the then rule of President Gamal Abdul Nasser. During the summer, we had the opportunity to go to many different parts of Egypt, and one such trip was across the Sinai Desert to the Gaza Strip. What is happening in the Gaza Strip right now is so wrenching From so many perspectives, the absolute horror of the Hamas attack, the ignition of war, the almost 20,000 deaths in the Gaza Strip, the humanitarian catastrophe in the Gaza Strip, the seeming hopelessness of the endgame that will be at least a partial solution or resolution for both sides. I'm not writing about this at this time to put my two cents into the ongoing debate. Rather, I'm writing about this because I came across a handwritten letter that I had sent to my very special grandmother on August 15th, 1963, 60 years ago. Given everything that's happening right now on the Gaza Strip, I thought I would share what my observations were some 60 years ago when I was there. Dear Graham, I really appreciate your letters so much. They are so encouraging, and it is a real pleasure to know that somebody's trying to learn about the Middle East. I'm afraid when I get home, it will be like talking to a stone wall when I talk to mom and dad, for they don't know anything about Egypt and the Middle East, I'm afraid. This is a very sad thing, for this part of the world is really moving. The newspaper coverage of the Arab world in Egypt is very poor and inadequate in America. The biggest distortion that the American press makes concerns the Israeli problem. The American public is ignorant of the Arab and Palestinian side of the problem. 
We went to the Gaza Strip last week for a three-day stay. This was a most enlightening experience. Holy cow. All right, so that was uh, Neil Peterson, and uh, that's his uh, meandering musing segment. And you can hear the rest of that. I decided to have the audience of this show hear it up to that point. But if you want to hear what happened in his experience in Gaza, you're going to have to go to his podcast. I'm going to make you work for that. And all you need to do is go to meanderingmusings.net, or you can go to anywhere and find his podcast. Go anywhere and get that. So I think you'll want to hear the rest of that uh, podcast. If you go to anywhere other than the website, as he just mentioned, meanderingmusings.net, go ahead and put in Meandering Musings with Neil. It'll pop right up. Okay. That even does it better. All right. Meandering Musings with Neil. You got a bunch of them, and I think they're very worthwhile. I mean, it has a really... I like how you're giving everyone just a taste. Yeah. Just a taste. An appetizer. came to me at night. Who says I'm not creative? I said I'm not. (laughs) That's right. Earlier. Let's get to uh, an interview I had with Stu Elway last week, and it has to do with the governor's race coming up in November. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think people are kind of getting tired of politics, even though a lot of this is a year away. I don't want to spend a great deal on it myself. But um, Neil, or excuse me, Stuart Elway is just a phenomenal individual. He's been analyzing public opinion since 1975, and he's directed research projects across the country for large and small size businesses, and he directs what now is called the Crosscut Elway Poll. So here's my conversation with him just about a week ago. So, Stu, you did a recent poll, and it was weighing where the governor's race stands right now between Dave Reichert, the Republican, and Bob Ferguson, the Democrat. But before I jump into that, there's also a Mark Mullet who was a factor in this. Is he still running, and what's the latest on that? Yes, there Two leading candidates uh, and best known are Attorney General Bob Ferguson and former Congressman Dave Reichert. Mark Mullet is a moderate state senator who's running as a Democrat. And then Sammy Byrd, who is a more of a Freedom Caucus kind of Republican from the Tri-Cities, is running as a, in, as a Republican. So there are four people in the race. Okay, and so just to look at down the road, do they have any chance at all? For most normal people, uh, they're not paying a lot of attention to this race yet. We ask the question a little bit differently than is typical. Usually the question is a, a horse race poll, and the question is the election or today, and the candidates were these four people, who would you vote for? And then that's how it's reported. In our poll this time, recognizing that the election's a year away, and we asked them to evaluate each of the four candidates independently. And we didn't ask them which one they would vote. So, for example, for Bob Ferguson, we said, do you intend to vote for him? Could you vote for him? Or will you not vote for him? In Ferguson's case, 12% said they already intended to vote for him, but another 25% said that they could. So that's 37%. But 31% said they would not vote for that guy. Under any circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Mm Because, you know, the voters are going to, they've got 10 months to learn about these candidates and make up their mind. In that case, Ferguson had 37. Reichert, the Republican, leading Republican, had 31. But Mark Mullen had 23. And Sammy Byrd had 17. So 
at this point, you'd have to say they're all in it. We talked about this uh, a while back, and my take on this election is we haven't had a Republican governor elected since 1980. Keep in mind, the Seahawks were about three or four years old when that occurred. I tried to think of an analogy here. Yeah, before the Internet. Before the Internet, before a lot of things. The Sonics were still going strong, whatever. We could run this for a little while, but it does show how long it's been. And I said to you that I didn't think Dave Reichert had a chance because of the abortion issue. And I'm going to take that track a little bit longer and why I submitted that is that you can be pro-choice and you can say it's not for me but i support a woman's right to choose and i think that's what he's saying but because of roe versus wade being reversed that i didn't think women in general would trust anything other than a position that would say i'm not, i'm pro-choice totally but i think i'm yeah. wrong there that issue is still very potent. I think it's not entirely black and white. You can bet that Republicans, particularly in this state, are going to be running away from it. Democrats are going to be trying to hang it on them. So, Riker won't be able to avoid it entirely, but it's certainly not going to be his issue. And the, the number one category of answer was party. Party identification. But abortion was way down the list. That doesn't mean it's not going to be uh, an issue. Uh, the Republican has to get all the Republican base, all the Republican-leaning independents, all the true independents, and about a third of the Democratic-leaning independents in order to get a majority. That's a pretty heavy lift. Republicans do not hold a single statewide office anymore. And the other factor here, Stu, I would just like to throw in here, I just had this thought, people who are leaning Republican, more conservative, are moving to other states, like Idaho, to they can be more with their own. Is that a factor here, or, or is that so small it really won't make well, any that's difference? A, that's, yeah, that's a pretty small number. It is a fa- I mean, that's, that is seems to be going on. There was a book that came out in 2008 that, that called The Big Sort that talked about people moving to places where they felt more, you know, politically comfortable. So we're talking about, or excuse me, 2008. Dave Reichert, for example, one of the top issues that we had that showed up in our poll and in a couple of different places was public safety. You know, that issue is made order for former Sheriff Dave Reichert. He'll be leaning on that. I read Danny Westneed's column yesterday, which you were featured in it, about some of the issues facing the legislature this time. And one thing well, what caught my attention is that one of the perennial top issues, and that's education, was barely even a blip on your poll. Yeah. And that's been a major shift. Could you talk about that a bit? And that, again, is an open-ended question. From 2015 to about 2018, education was the number one issue named. Uh, with like 42, 45% of the people named that issue. So it was a dominant issue. Since 2018, education has gone from 32% down to 5% last year and then back up to 9% mentioning it this time. But the top issues are the economy, public safety, homelessness, and then taxes, which is always sort of up. So, so public crime and homelessness have, in the last five or six years, risen to the top of the public agenda. Yeah, and also, uh, Danny Westney pointed out, I think, along with you, is that this is no time to abandon 
education as being a top priority because we're not doing too well right now in terms of a lot of the educational things that we measure progress and certainly reading scores are down and math scores are down considerably. But the one that really struck me is that 30% of elementary students are chronically absent from the city's Title I schools. And I imagine Title I is defined as lower income schools. And I guess there are 37 of those within 100 schools in Seattle. You know, 40% middle schoolers and 30% of elementary school students are chronically absent. Yeah, I saw that. I hadn't uh, been aware of that factor before. That is pretty pretty startling. Um, and, and you wonder if part of that is people got used to not going to school uh, during the COVID. All right, that was Stu Elway with the Elway Poll talking about uh, the governor's race and some other issues. And again, it's early for that race, but I thought there were some interesting things that he revealed in that poll. And we do this from time to time with Stu. And again, he's so knowledgeable in these areas. He's been doing polls since 1975. And I like how he explains the methodology of the polls before he talks about the results. Yes. You know, because you can poll anyone about just about anything. And by the wording of that poll, it can really influence it. You got it. Eric, can we do the uh, introduction to Voices of History? I like this. I haven't heard this in a yeah. while. Welcome to today's Voices of History. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. Let the celebration begin in Seattle. It is over. The Seattle Supersonics have won the NBA World Championship Series in five games. The transition and the move of this, of this operation and this team begins tomorrow morning from Seattle to Oklahoma City. I'm sure a lot of sports fans remember those moments. Yeah. Still deep in winter, but hey, spring is not too far away. I hear now that the sun will be out when we see it after five o'clock. So that's a, that's a starting Friday there. Oh, it did. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Good to know. And then on uh, the scene. 55 days, I guess, till spring. 55 days. And the in sun the is county. just behind that. The, the, the several layers of dark clouds. That's right. right. We know it's there. <laughs> it's there somewhere. Fake news. It's not there anymore. <laughs> All right. Let's get into Voices of History, which was just introduced. On January 21st, 1977, President Carter granted an unconditional pardon to hundreds of thousands of men who evaded the draft during the Vietnam War. About 100,000 Americans left the U.S., about 90% going to Canada and Canada welcomed them as immigrants. A little controversial there, but Canada did not support the Vietnam War. A lot of our allies did not. I think Britain either or France were not behind that war. That should have told us something. After the war, the U.S. government continued to prosecute draft dodgers. But during the 1976 presidential campaign, Governor Carter promised to pardon the so-called draft dodgers and did so after becoming president. Though many transplanted Americans returned home, an estimated 50,000 settled permanently in Canada. 
Now, Carter's decision, I remember, was very controversial, and uh, it was heavily criticized by veterans groups. But, you know, presidents like Bill Clinton at the time, they were young, of draft age. George Bush, Dan Quayle, Dick Cheney, Donald Trump, none of them went to Vietnam. So a lot of people said they found a way out draft dodging themselves. So that's a little bit of history from uh, Voice of History Today. And that was 1977. So let's see. We'll move on now to, let's just stay with this now. This is, I guess, uh, history that's kind of closer. But um, a column in the New York Times at the end of the year caught my eye. And Frank Bruni, the columnist, wrote it. And it's from... Um, he pulled out a quote from Mort Rosenblum of the Mort Report. And quote, this is what Mort Bloom had to say. Too many voters today are easily conned, deeply biased, impervious to facts, and of survival instincts contrary to myths. What he means by that, frogs do leap out of heating pots. Stampeding cattle do stop at the edge of the cliff. Lemmings don't really commit mass suicide. What he's saying, those are myths. What will we find out about Americans in 2024? Okay, I just caught me, that quote jumped out at me because my belief, and a lot of people are saying this, that democracy is really up for election this time, whether it will continue or not. Not to prolong this for a long time, but I just wanted to see what you were thinking, both Eric's, or if you'd like to pass, that's fine too. Well, <clears throat> when I hear that and, and think about what you just said, I think about the busyness of our lives. And I, and I wonder if maybe your parents, Paul, or let's say your grandparents, if they spent a lot more time because they just weren't inundated with so much information coming at them from every angle. And they formed these opinions based on fact as opposed to imagery you, you know, quick, uh, what do they call it, news bites, sound bites, and that sort of thing. I just feel like we have hardly any time to do things in our lives that are of true importance, and electing our officials are really of utmost importance when you think about it. Well, you know, you have a good point. I think there's no doubt about that. We go back to even to when I was quite young. I didn't really watch the news that much, but I just recall in the 1960s, you had CBS Evening News at 6 o'clock. <laughs> Local news came on at uh, 5.30, and that's it, one half hour, or maybe it was after the news. It was either like, okay, let's say the national news came on at 6 o'clock, Walter Cronkite a half hour, then local news yeah. for a half hour, done, yeah. into the next program. Now, to what you're suggesting with social media and everything else, 24-7 news and, and everything that's inundated, now what, local news starts at 4 in the morning and it's still yeah. going to 8 o'clock? whatever. But I think to your point, yes, we're inundated with this information all the time. And it's like, sometimes you just want to put your hands over your ears, your eyes, like, and over your mouth, like see no evil, do no evil, that sort of thing. It is, it's too much. Well, and I've talked to friends after the fact, after elections, and they're continuing to complain. And my first question is always, did you vote? And quite often the answer is no. And I said, well, it's hard to complain when you're not taking personal responsibility to get involved. Absolutely. Get involved, learn. It's this is a this is an, a major thing that a lot of countries don't get to experience people in other countries. We get a chance to vote. 
well, in, in my opinion, why I don't spend a lot of time on this is also is people are so hardened. I don't have the statistics in front of me to prove this. It's just a sense that I have is that I would think at this point, maybe there'd be 15 to 20 percent people undecided. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go back to 1960 in the 1960s and stuff, the presidential candidates were starting to announce now, mm-hmm. you know, in January and February. Robert Kennedy in 1968 didn't announce till March of 68. I mean, elections, what, seven months away. You had candidates that were being considered, but it didn't start to New Hampshire. And then people would be running. And that was like February, what right. about now? Right. So that's when things started to happen. Now we've been talking about the candidates for two and a half years. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like two months after the uh, riots in the Capitol that we were talking about Iowa <laughs> coming yes. up, you know, yes. and stuff like that. That's another thing. And, and all the money. I mean, the billions of dollars now. There's no limits on contributions. And when you go through this election cycle, you're watching television. I mean, I don't watch television very seldom in real time. When it comes up to November or so, or October, when these commercials are hitting right after another, I don't watch live TV at all. I can't do it. It'll bring you down. It'll yeah. bring you down. There's so much here. I just want to say you can start. Yeah, I know. We could go. do the whole show on it. But, but I, I would leave myself at least uh, this last little bit, you know, civility. There was a time when Democrats, Republicans, independents, we could all have a conversation about something without somebody storming off and that's it. You're an idiot. I don't want to hear any more. Blah, blah, blah. I'm closing down to your... You, know, you used to actually have these conversations. You've mentioned great politicians in this state from both parties. That's right. And to go to your point there, Al Gore in 2000, yep. he thought that the election was not fair. But in mid-December, he could see the country and go Google him and his speech. And essentially what he says is, I don't like what happened here, but for the good of the country, I'm not going to prolong this. So that was the last time that has happened. And uh, it's really destructive. I'll leave this. I don't know what's going to happen in this election. And I am very concerned, very concerned about, uh, again, a permanent minority winning elections. Uh, Mm. So I think you know what I'm talking about. Eric, do you have anything to add or just say, hey, I'll pass on this? That's okay. No, you know, I I agree with uh, what you both have been saying here. And it is interesting, just like the historical context of all this as we were coming out of Voices of History, uh, it, it reminds me, like, often we think, okay, well, we're having these issues today because of, like, social media and stuff and people getting misinformation. Um, but, you know, we've all, we've had a long history of people getting misinformation and, and stuff being uh, spread. Like, you know, Mark Twain often being credited with a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its pants. Uh, and, you know, obviously Mark, Tra- Mark Twain hasn't been around a while, so that's a historical quote. But the thing that's funny about that is I look it up, Mark Twain didn't even say that. It was, it was uh, originally, apparently— It was Paul Casey who said that. —published by Jonathan Swift okay. uh, centuries uh, ago. Jonathan Swift? Right, exactly. I like it, though. So, the message is wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. It, it just goes to show we, we've been dealing with these issues since the dawn of time, you know, with misinformation spreading wildly and then uh, us dealing with the consequences. So in some ways, that gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, we've made it this far, <laughs> even even with the stuff that we're dealing with now seeming like 
just insane. Like, how can this be reality? You know, how so much lies and misinformation and people just being able to say whatever and getting fact-checked. But, uh, you know, some people just don't care about being fact-checked or or debunked. It seems to have no effect. We've dealt with all this stuff before, and we've somehow— carried through to where we are today. So uh, that's the thing that I'm going to, you know, get out of this conversation with is hopefully just a little bit of hope um, that regardless of what happens. Thank you for that, because you are right. There is this has been going on for as long as we've been around. Exactly. So there was like four or five newspapers and towns. And you think that was great. But everyone was biased and had their own agendas and things. So, yes, I would agree with you there. And Thanks for leaving us in an upbeat matter because maybe we will persevere. So um, I think we're uh, winding down some here. And why don't I get into what I talked about at the beginning of the show? You know, Pete Carroll is no longer our football coach. And a friend of mine, Bruce Amundsen, we went to school together at Washington State. Great guy. Had a conversation with or observed this of Pete Carroll when he visited Warehouse when he was working there. God, this was when he first was hired as head coach. But this is something that involved Pete Carroll and what became a future fan. Here we go. Yeah, we had a chance to have uh, Coach Carroll come down and and talk to us at Warehouser to employees uh, about team building. And uh, this was before he'd coached any any games for the Seahawks, but there was obviously a lot of buzz around it, and people were excited. After the assembly, the, the employees lined up, and and basically most of these signatures were very cursory. It would be just be like, you know, what's your name, Paul? Okay, hey, Paul, win forever, Pete. And at the end, Jason, who was our MC, came up to, to Carol and said, hey, would you mind doing a little extra inscription for a, a good friend of mine? He's been a friend from childhood, and we had a lot of great times together. We went to Seahawk games. We even played in the band and all sorts of things. And, and unfortunately, uh, Sean had a, a situation that arose a few years ago, a complication from a surgery that has left him confined to a wheelchair and and as such he stopped going to the games he stopped you know playing in bands etc it just uh, kind of become a little bit more of a recluse than he normally was so he's essentially and, and right losing now, his will to live or not that may be a little strong but he was not doing well mentally at this time yeah he had just basically kind of withdrawn from the things that he really liked to do. And then to add on to this, he had a, a, a new medical situation come up which required a transplant. However, due to his condition, this was not just a slam dunk where he'd say, yeah, let's do it. Because if it was successful, he'd have maybe five to ten years more of life. However, because of his situation, he could also die on the operating table. So this was not an easy decision for Sean to make. And so Jason just asked Carol, you know, would you do a little special inscription for him based on what I've just told you? And Carol said, sure, give me a book. So he starts writing in it, and he's about, I don't know, two, maybe two sentences into it. And he says to Jason, hey, do you have Sean's phone number? And Jason says, yeah, I've got it in my cell phone here. And so Carol says, well, give him a call. So Jason has the phone up to his ear, but Sean had a very loud voice, and you could kind of hear what was going on at the other end. So uh, he called up, and you hear Sean, yeah, hello, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Jason said, hey, uh, Sean, I've got someone here who would like to talk to you. And so he hands the phone to Carol, and 
And Carol says, hi, Sean, this is Coach Carol. And you hear that, oh, my God, from the other side. And and Carol starts uh, talking to Sean, and then he turns around and kind of, so he has his back to the rest of us and leans over. Uh, so he's doing this so quiet. he can have a private conversation with Sean. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. We can't hear we can't hear what he's he's telling uh, Sean. And we've done. Carol uh, kind of sits up and he says, uh, "I tell you what, Sean, I am going to give uh, Jason the number to my assistant. And what I want you to do is I want you to text my assistant and tell him whatever decision you made on the." procedure are you going to have it or are you not and i want you to know that whatever you decide to do it or not do it it's the right choice okay good luck and so he hands the phone back to jason and and that night jason calls up sean and jason says hey sean out of curiosity have you made a decision on the operation and sean says yes i'm going to do it and i'm not going to let coach down i'm going to live and so he has the operation it is successful he lives he now resumes his his life. He starts going to the Seahawks games again. In fact, uh, he was at the games uh, the season that so they went to the Super Bowl. He starts playing in a little band again with Jason, etc. Uh, you know, upbeat about life than he was before. Unfortunately, Sean has passed, but he did have you know an extra five years, ten years of life that he lived more fully. And, uh, you know, when, whenever someone says to me, oh, you know, Carol's a phony, or I don't believe some of this stuff, you hear them, uh, you know, say on the radio and stuff like that. I say, well, you know, let me tell you this story. And he took the opportunity to have that personal interaction with Sean. Obviously, he gave Sean the confidence to go ahead and make the decision to have the operation. And turned out it, it was a life-changing decision for Sean. All right, there we go. Again, that's Bruce Amundsen talking about what he observed a moment with Pete Carroll, the incoming coach then of the Seattle Seahawks. I'm a big Pete Carroll fan. I'm a little startled that he was fired, but they, I guess people want to move on at the Seahawks organization, and they didn't call me and ask my <laughs> opinion. I wasn't home when they did, I'm sure. But nonetheless, uh, I've just thought it was great 14 years. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I hope he gets another job in coaching. Around here, too. That'd be great. Oh, yeah. I don't know where. But. So uh, that's it. That's all we have uh, time for today. My name is Paul Casey. And again, if you want to get maybe a free copy of the book, Voices, uh, excuse me, Voices of Experience. No, Is Self-Employment for You? Um, you can call 425-653-1166, leave your address and phone number, and we will get you that copy. Again, the first caller will get that. Next week, we got a Dr. Michael Kreger, and he's author of How Not to Die. Hmm, okay. So that's a <laughs> series he's had, and uh, interesting conversation. I've had it with him, and he talks about food that will boost your longevity and keys to combat, combat aging. In the Solopreneur series about entrepreneurship, I'm going to talk about Is the Customer Always Right? Mm, okay. okay. Think about that. Now, Voices of Experience airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Again, you know that if you're listening now. It is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, AM 1150. And Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 a.m. Thanks to Deborah Royce um, and also Neil Peterson, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, Benny Mathers, Bruce Amundsen, and the singer and the sang, uh, the singer and writer, excuse me, of the next song of this week's Timeless Classic. Quote of the Week, 
quote, I like long walks when they are taken, especially for people that annoy me. Noel Coward. <laughs> I'll leave you with this. I don't think a general is ever going to be named Noel Coward. No. That's no. going to be kind of disqualifier. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week at the same time. I don't know what inspired it. It was not because any personal experience, because I was living in Beverly Hills. So said the writer and singer of this week's Timeless Classic. It took five months to write this song, although he said it was an easy write. At the last moment, orchestra strings were inserted into the background, which really helped the song resonate and most likely helped it reach number one in the U.S. in August of 1966. Johnny Rivers and the Poor Side of Town. Tell me how much you miss me When the last time I saw you You wouldn't even kiss me That rich guy you've been seeing Must have put you down So welcome back, baby to the poor side of town To him you were nothing But a little plaything Was a plaything Not much more Than an overnight fling This boy had ever found A girl, it's hard to find nice things On the poor side of town